0: Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation, What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? Dr. Pat Roberts knew she wanted to be a surgeon from the age of five and was one of the rare women of her generation to make it, not just through the program but all the way to the top of her profession. She credits competition with her three brothers and sheer determination, the ability to look like a lady but sound like a truck driver. In all the ills of the macho workplace, she learned to give as good as she got and managed to have three kids in three years in her late 30s to round it out. Across her 35-year career as a surgeon, she rose to be the first female chair of the Department of Surgery at the Leahy Hospital at Tufts University, where her husband also worked. She always knew she wanted a second act, but was too busy with her first to think what it could be. She went to Stanford's DCI program to start exploring. So today I'm welcoming Pat Roberts to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us.
1: Thanks so much, Aviva. Delighted to be here. So Pat, you
0: are currently in the middle of Stanford's Distinguished Careers Institute program. And so I wanted to start there by just situating you in your hundred year life. Uh, Where are you at and why and how did you pick this particular program at this particular time?
1: Absolutely, well, um, I had practiced as a surgeon for over 35 years, really the job of a lifetime, but not the job for a lifetime. I had always considered my second act. In fact, when I first got married, I was talking to my husband about this. And finally, a couple of years ago, I started talking about my second act and he said, I have been hearing about this for over 30 years. So please either tell me the date or just stop talking about it because I'm just tired of hearing about it. And that was really the first time that it seemed like a reality. And I started to think of what, this third quarter could look like. It was totally overwhelming at first. And I talked with a lot of people. I I talked with a good friend of mine who was in the midst of her third quarter. I explained to her where I was and what I was thinking of. And uh, she said, well, you might wanna look at the Stanford program. What you're looking for, it sounds like they have all the components And the Stanford uh, program in the Distinguished Career Institute is uh, built on three pillars. So recalibrating meaning and purpose, community, and wellness. And I looked on the website and it looked interesting. And then I spoke with Phil Pizzo, who is the uh, director and founder of the program, was very inspired. I applied to that in uh, early 2020 got in and then of course COVID hit and so we were delayed several times. It almost felt like it was never going to happen but the cohort of us that are the 2020 your cohort. Sec- your second act kept receding <laughs> on <laughs> the horizon. Absolutely. Your husband must have been laughing at you. You're never going to get the second act. It's It seemed like that but after a year we did indeed start and in that year of delay we actually had an opportunity to meet multiple times. We had a pre-DCI program. So we really hit the ground running. And I think that was really instrumental in all of a sudden finding that all of us had 40 new friends. And just so rare to, at this point in your life, have 40 new friends. It was just fabulous. And when you were talking all these years about the second act, Mm -hmm. did you
0: talk about what it was going to be or where you might go? Or was it just this theoretical, there is another chapter?
1: it was more theoretical. There is something else. What that was, was very unclear. And I think the practice of medicine is so all-consuming that it was really difficult to think outside of that box. So let's go back to the beginning before we hear about all of that first act. Where did
0: it start? Take me back to zero. Where were you born to what kind of a family, <laughs> parents, and,
1: and what was the imprint then on you of that start? So I was born in New York City in Queens, and my parents and I lived there for the first couple of years. We actually lived with my grandparents. We then moved out to Old Bethpage on Long Island, so about 25 miles east of the city. That's very modern now, a multi-generational household. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. And my dad was an electrical engineer. He worked for Grumman. He actually did some of the work on the lunar module that landed on the moon, His work was always top secret, so I never got to go to work with him, as opposed to all of my friends who could go to work with their father. Mom mainly stayed home. She first dabbled in some modeling and secretarial work, but she stayed home. I'm the oldest of four children. I have uh, three brothers and mom was quite bright. She actually skipped three grades. And then when she wanted to go away to school for college, her parents told her, no, 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 she wasn't going away. And so she ostensibly punished them by then saying, okay, then I'm not going. So I think from that She really uh, stressed education and she really believed that you could do anything as long as you believed in yourself and you worked hard. And she was a pretty strict taskmaster. So uh, if you got a 99, she wanted to know what happened to the other point. If you got an A, well, why didn't you get an A plus? But education was very important. The house was very busy, very active, and enormously competitive. So we competed about everything. Who got the best grades? Who was the best athlete? Even who could get to the shower after we went to the beach to then get all the hot water? And where did that come from? Was (laughs) that your mom kind of pushing you? It was without a doubt my mom pushing me and pushing all of us to excel, to achieve. From a very early age, from actually in first grade, I decided I wanted to be a surgeon. My first grade teacher brought in a cow's heart. I don't know why, but I was fascinated by the anatomy. And I I then started telling people I was going to be a surgeon. And my mother wouldn't say if. She'd say, well, when you're a surgeon or when you're in medical school. So there was this continual positive reinforcement. And I was very focused toward that goal. So when I went to college, I went to Boston University, which had a six-year program, combining four years of college and four years of medical school in six years. We went over the summers and to me that was very appealing because it cut out two years and that was a little bit of a theme to be very goal-oriented to constantly be looking at the end. Get there fast. Get there fast, exactly.
0: So come 25, end of first quarter, did you get there? Where were you in, had you finished the six years?
1: Yeah, so Come 25, I was actually training in general surgery. I graduated from medical school at at age 24, and I went to Boston City Hospital, an inner city hospital. We saw lots of trauma, lots of gunshot wounds, stab wounds. It was kind of the height of the drug wars in the 1980s, and it was really just a fabulous experience, a very intense experience. The practice of surgery at that time and training was very different. We were on call every other night, so spending over 100 hours a week in the hospital. You know, the joke was the only thing bad about being on call every other night was that you missed half of the good cases. Things have have thankfully changed, but it was really wonderful. I love the practice of surgery. And love the people that I worked with. As I look back on it, I also reflect on how different the practice was. And certainly at that time, there were very few women in surgery. There were more people in internal medicine, pediatrics, but really very few in, in surgery. So I was really determined to work harder, be technically better. Prove I've, prove it.
0: Prove, well, <laughs> prove you had a lot it. of
1: practice. you had a lot of
0: practice from your family, I guess, being the only girl and a bunch of boys. I, I was the same only girl and a bunch of boys. You, you learned yeah. to be pretty competitive from the get-go.
1: Absolutely. And it almost seems natural that way. But you know, I certainly knew there'd be a lot more scrutiny. So I really worked on honing my skills on being technically the best surgeon I could be, on being tougher, you know, kind of sleeping less or, you know, it even got down to, kind of salty language. So if they could curse, I could curse more. You know, at one point, one of my evaluations said, looks like a lady, sounds like a truck driver. Uh, but, uh, uh, I think that's a great title for your yeah. memoir. <laughs> <laughs> looks like a lady and sounds like a truck driver. Okay. I think
0: that might be a summary of your whole generation. You think? It,
1: it may very well be, yes. <laughs> but I also had wonderful supporters. So the chief of surgery at Boston City Hospital was... Uh, actually a wonderful supporter and a wonderful mentor. So give me a a summary of all
0: of this Q2. What did you do? Mm -hmm. What did you become? What did you learn?
1: So uh, after Boston City Hospital, uh, I went to Leahy to train in colon and rectal surgery. I had actually done some work there as a resident, and I was just so impressed by the surgeons. They were some of the best technical surgeons I had ever worked with. And they were all also some of the most wonderful individuals. So I trained there and uh, I then stayed on staff there in colon and rectal surgery. I was the first female full-time surgeon at Lahey. What was it like to be the first? What bubbles
0: or ripples did that create, if any, or is that just like nobody mentioned it?
1: (laughs) It is something that people have mentioned more 20, 30 years later than they did at the time. And I had been in so many situations where I was the only woman that it almost seemed pretty much like the status quo. (laughs) So I didn't really think about it that much. I became chief of the division and ultimately chair of surgery, took care of any number of patients over the years. Truly an incredible honor to care for patients. And I really learned so much from kind of the grace and the courage and resiliency of my patients. I had the opportunity to train. 70 or so colorectal fellows, and any number of general surgery residents and, and medical students. And I also became involved in a number of national organizations. So, I uh, became president of the American Society of Colonorectal Surgeons and president of the American Board of Colonorectal Surgery. And so, got to have a little bit of an impact on a national level. That sounds like a little bit of a big impact, not a little. (laughs) That's that's not truck driver language. That's lady language. Let's get rid of the little
0: bit of impact. You had a pretty major impact on your generation's uh, approach to
1: this. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh And uh, in the beginning of my uh, second quarter, got married. My husband, Mike, is also a surgeon and really is the most wonderful individual. I feel very fortunate to have met him. We actually met in residency. He was a couple years behind me. So I was actually his chief resident. <laughs> we started going out after that, not during. It's like and, the Obama uh, <laughs> story. He married his, not his <laughs> boss exactly, but uh,
0: exactly. Sleep, sleepless <laughs> in residency. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes. And then he actually went on to uh, work at Leahy also. So we worked at the same institution for many, many, many years. But uh, he was also somebody who, when I had any opportunity, he was always an incredible supporter. And at times when I'd say, oh, how are we going to do this? And he'd say, just do it. We'll figure it out. And even coming to Stanford, when I was accepted, and I said, well, how are we going to do this? You're going to be in Boston. I'm going to be out here. Well, you want to go, just go. And so really, uh, I feel very fortunate uh, to have met him. Over the course of my 30s, after five years or so, we had three kids within three years. So, life was very busy. Uh, How did uh, did you do that? So, how did you do that for all the dual
0: career couples listening mired (laughs) in their balancing act? how How do two surgeons have three kids in three years and still continue?
1: It was a bit of a blur. And when I look at videos, I say to my husband, do you remember that? And it was, wow. It was the years were a blur. We were blessed with fantastic childcare. And so when people say, How did you do it? I used to say one word Heidi. Heidi was our nanny, and she was an unbelievable individual. And uh, that was one way. And I think the other way was working at the same institution. It actually gave us some efficiencies. So sometimes on the weekend, Mike would go in and make rounds. And then I would bring the three kids in and we'd have the transfer and they would spend some time at the nurse's station or looking at x-rays or things like that. Having three kids that young, it was sometimes easier to work than to be at home, at least for me. (laughs) Absolutely. We also went about it as we weren't going to overthink it. We were just going to take each day at a time. And uh, I'd advise people to spread it out if they can. But there are things in life that you can control and things that you just can't. And I just feel blessed to have three wonderful children.
0: Absolutely. So, End of Q2, a lot of building, tremendous foundation, huge national and local impact on a single institution Mm -hmm. as a family. (laughs) How did your second quarter end? How did your, then what did you want from your third quarter? Where were you at? And was there any change?
1: I was still a little nebulous in terms of exactly what I wanted, but I also knew that I couldn't figure out what the third quarter was going to entail while I was still in the midst of the second quarter. So the practice of surgery, being chair of the department, was so busy that I felt like I couldn't spend... It just wasn't right for me to spend time looking at what I was going to do after that. So I deter- I decided that there was going to be a pull-the-plug date, if you will, and uh, made an announcement that I was going to resign from my position, which was very interesting because people thought, oh, did you get fired? No. Do you have a serious health problem? No. Are you just crazy? Well, I might be, but. um, And so. uh, And what drove that? What was it you made you do that? It had been the practice of surgery for over 35 years and the sense that I wanted to do something different, but really couldn't process or think through that while I was still couldn't do the second job while I was still doing the first job. So that was some of the thinking. And how old were you? What was that age or stage? Uh, That was 61. That was 61. sixty-one, and the kids were gone by then or leaving. They were launched pretty much. They yeah. were all in college or grad school or working. So it was, it was as good a time to do that as any time, and that was early twenty twenty actually 2019. And so I spent a little bit of time traveling and uh, I decided that this was going to be the gap year that I never had or the sabbatical that I never had. And then I was in the process of looking at various options and then applied to the Stanford program. With the pandemic, it Gave me a lot of opportunity to think, process, and look at the next steps. I also went back to Leahy to assist with planning and workforce challenges during the pandemic, which was really a unique opportunity. So you are called back in as a kind of elder mentor to your (laughs) former employer. That and I also volunteered because I had... An enormous number of trips, meetings, talks scheduled, and overnight, everything evaporated. And I thought, what am I going to do? And so that was really a, a wonderful opportunity to do that. As I approached the third quarter, I also looked back and everything had been so planned out. I could practically tell you second quarter where I was going to be every day. And so I was determined to allow myself to wander a little bit, to wayfair and to not navigate. So that's been one of the themes of uh, my third quarter. Wayfaring, I love it. It's mm-hmm. actually
0: a word that your colleague Mary Pearl mentioned.
1: Is that a Stanford DCI metaphor, wayfaring? It it is actually comes from Bill Burnett and Dave Evans and uh, the Design School, so it's part of the vocabulary in designing your life, where navigators know exactly where they're going and know the exact path. And in wayfaring, you have kind of a general concept. You kind of know a general. Direction that you're going in, but you don't know all the steps. And so it's a little more enjoying the process.
0: So you're in prime wayfaring mode here. What's been the impact? You're, tell us where you are in your year, which has actually turned into a couple of years. Um, <laughs> and what's been the impact and how's it landing? And are you
1: seeing any clearer where you're wayfaring towards? So I'm actually in the last month and a half. The year's gone incredibly fast. And part of that has been starting off in the first quarter and allowing myself to wander and take whatever classes I wanted to. It's uh, really been fabulous to take classes just because you're interested in them. So I've tried to learn Spanish this year. I've tried to get out of my comfort zone and uh, try different things. Doesn't it make you feel like a kid again, that sort of thing? Oh, it absolutely does. And uh, one of those, gee, I wish I could have done college at this age or <laughs> gone back to doing school again. It's uh, it's really been a wonderful experience and really has impressed me how much college has changed since I was in school and so many more resources, so many more interactive discussions. It, it's really been great. And I've also looked at, uh, I didn't become a surgeon in one year. And so I don't know that I'm going to know exactly what I'm doing in one year. And some of the things that I've looked at is over the years, I've enjoyed teaching, I've enjoyed mentoring, advising and things. And so I have an opportunity in the fall to come back to Stanford to teach uh, in a health policy class that I'm looking forward to. I've continued to uh, mentor and advise a number of young surgeons and uh, gotten involved in a uh, healthcare system board where I chair the uh, Quality and Safety Committee. So that's a little bit of what the future looks like. So very classic third quarter, giving back,
0: generativity and systems impact, uh, the knowledge and experience gained.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, as I look back, I feel enormously uh, lucky to have met the people that I've met and have the opportunities that I've had and feel very committed to uh, giving back. And just on the dual career couple side, your, your husband,
0: I, is he shifting or is he continuing, I think, on his
1: own path? He's continuing on his own path. He's been a little more of a wayfarer to start off with, so uh, he... Uh, did a couple of years of basic science research. He got his master's in public health. He uh, got an MBA. This year, his project has been building a sailboat while I've been away. So he's just finishing up that. And we're hopefully going to get some time sailing off the coast of Maine later this summer. But uh, he's continued on his path.
0: Lovely. And I want to toss you forward into the fourth quarter thought about it Do you know you've seen a lot of it the fourth quarter in your line of work what do you do or hope for or, or are in designing for that final quarter
1: i look at that and just hope that uh i have good health during that and a good quality of life continue to have great friends and and family and look toward Continuing to be curious and to learn, I look at my in-laws as some role models for that. And uh, you know, kind of into their late eighties, we're still taking classes. And you know, at one point, my mother-in-law was talking about getting a PhD in things. And so, I, I look at them as uh, the model of a life well lived, active, engaged, <laughs> all the way through.
0: So. Last wrap-up question that I ask everybody is, if you had to put a, a metaphor, an image, or a verb to each of your quarters, what would it be?
1: <laughs> well, we actually looked at an exercise of looking at your life in six words, and uh I looked at the first quarter as becoming, looked at the second quarter as got there, and the third quarter is so now what? (laughs) And uh, I might now reframe that and say that uh, the phrase may be still exploring. And that's just great. That's wonderful. That's a fantastic, inspiring
0: story of a trailblazer, one of the first women in your field who's beautifully shown how it can be done and then lead the whole sector to change and improve. That's exactly what a lot of your generation has shown us how to do. Pat, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a privilege.
0: Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries.